Corinthians uh, this morning uh, and jump into the gospel according to Micah. Uh, Not exactly the title you would find in the Word, but... uh, one of those books that uh, very e- is very easy to demonstrate and show that there is a particular passage in it that has every meaning and every bearing upon why we are here this morning to worship God and to reflect upon uh, the incarnation. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to, to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child, then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And this one will be our peace. I don't know how familiar you are with the geography of uh, the promised land, but it really is not a very big place. Now, all of Israel is not very big at all. There are states in the United States that are bigger than the whole country of Israel or pretty close to it. One of the things I want to focus on this morning is this, is the idea that God very often uses what people would consider to be very insignificant things, sometimes things, sometimes people, to accomplish great and wonderful and miraculous things. Bethlehem simply means house of bread or house of fruit. It's mentioned here is uh, Ephrathah. That's because there is another Bethlehem that's further north. And and, and the thought here is that it's it's mentioned here by this specific name to make it distinct from the other one so no one is confused as to where uh, or what place is being referred to. Uh, you think about this particular passage, and, and, and we read this morning about the wise men coming, and they were seeking to find out where the child was, and Herod didn't know, and so he called together the, uh, the people in the know, and uh, they referred him to this particular passage, that the Jews knew where the Messiah was going to come from, this town of, of, of Bethlehem. Now, geographic-wise, as I was saying, Israel's not really a very big place. You may not realize this, but within just about a maybe 15 or 20-mile radius of where we're talking about here, there is a whole lot of Bible history that took place in that area. You may not realize it, but Bethlehem is less than 5 miles from, from Jerusalem. Bethel is about 10 miles on the other side of Jerusalem. So we're talking about within like a 12 or 15 mile radial area, there was a huge amount of Old Testament history that took place there. Bethel was the place where Abraham first went when he first came to the promised land, and that's where he built an altar to God, and he called that place Bethel. It's where, where Jacob uh, spent the night on his way as he was, in a sense, leaving to go into exile into 
a, a harem because his brother Esau was out to murder him. Bethlehem, we understand, gets its claim to fame because it was the birthplace, it was the home of King David. And if you know anything about King David, you know that he's acknowledged as being the great, he's the first king of all of Israel. And he's also acknowledged over and over again in Scripture as being the greatest of all kings. And if you know anything about King David, you know this, that he was not a perfect person, because if you're very familiar with him at all, you at least know about his affair with Bathsheba and the conspiracy to have her husband murdered, basically, as a result of it. So we know that David was not this perfect, wonderful, great guy that always did the right thing, that always said the right thing. That David himself was a very bad sinner. But the thing that distinguishes David apart from all the other kings, because we know there were a lot of kings that came after him that were related to him. They descended down through his bloodline. But what you would find with virtually every one of those is they had a, at least a divided heart. They may, maybe some, some of them worshipped the Lord God, but they also worshipped the gods of the lands. We do not find David doing that ever. That is why God calls him a man after his own heart. He never gave up on God and turned to false and fake idols. He worshipped the Lord as God all of the days of his life. But we understand that this particular passage is talking about the birth of Christ. And it comes down to this. That because what is said here in Micah, chapter 5, there is no other place the Messiah could have been born. It had to be in that particular place. To fulfill this prophecy that this is where the Christ child uh, would be born. You think about David. David of himself was a, not a very big stature. If you think about when, when God sent Samuel to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem, because he had appointed, God had appointed one of the sons of, of Jesse to become the king of Israel, that David was not the one that would have been picked by people. That he had brothers that were much taller than he was and much greater in their stature and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as a matter of fact, Jesse obviously didn't even, you know, when, if he found out what was going on, he didn't even think to even call David there because David certainly could not possibly be the one that God would choose for something like this. He was the least likely of all the sons of Jesse to be appointed to this particular position. But God called David because of David's heart. Can you imagine being described by God as a man after your own heart? That is how the Bible describes David. A man after God's own heart. Not a perfect man. But a man that loved God and sought God.
Bethlehem, as we said before, just simply means house of bread. Or it can't mean house of food. It was a rural community. Its economy was based upon agriculture. You think about the book of Ruth, it helps us to see that even more clearly when it talks about the barley harvest and the wheat harvest and all that was going on there. It was, it was, the, it was, you know, it was the town out in the country where they grew things. And a lot of what they grew wound up in Jerusalem. There's probably a sense in which Bethlehem served in part to feed the big city of Jer- all the people who lived in Jerusalem, not so many miles away. It is amazing when we see God choosing, appointing, whatever you want to call it, people, things, towns, for a very great purpose. Because it becomes obvious that the, the places that he chooses and the people that he chooses are very rarely the people in the places that we would choose. Bethlehem would have been totally, absolutely insignificant in the scheme of things, but for one thing. It was a birth crate, a place of Christ Jesus our Lord, which means this that it could very well be classified as the most important place on earth that ever existed. It's interesting that when those wise men men came to Herod, interesting, Herod didn't know where Christ was supposed to be born, so he went to those in the know, and this is where they brought him. How did they know that? How did they know the Christ child was to be born in Bethlehem? Because of Micah chapter 5. One of the things that we see so often, and we've talked a lot about this in Rome, is that God has given us the whole counsel of God now, and so... You and I, it's, it's obvious that this is where the Christ child had to be born. And this is a passage that we go to just about every Christmas to read again what it says all over again. In verse 2, it becomes very clear that this child that's to be born is not just any child. Not any just any child at all, but a very special child. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. It's not saying here that he will come forth at some point in eternity. What it's saying here basically is this one has been around for all of eternity. There never was a time when he was not. And we know this, that that can only be said about one being. And that being is God. God always has been, God is, God always will be. 
And that cannot be said about any other being. Every other being was created by that God. Every other being had a beginning. So we see here in this Old Testament scripture something that is not meant necessarily that clear in the Old Testament in a lot of places, but it becomes very clear in the New Testament. That is this, is that this child is not only going to be a child born of a woman, but it's going to be a child also born of God. If I were to ask you, what do you think the greatest miracle recorded in Scripture happened to be? I would imagine that a lot of people, when we would start thinking about that, we would jump right to the very first verse in all of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we look deeper and deeper into the heavens, and the deeper we go, the deeper we realize there is to go. My eighth grade science teacher put this in perspective for us one day when he asked us this question. He said, how big is the universe? And we're a bunch of eighth graders, and we're looking at each other and talking to each other a little bit and trying to come up with some idea about how we could determine what extent uh, or how far away the edge of the universe happens to be. And I'm not even sure what we ever said to him, but he looked at us and he said, well, answer me this question. He said, if there's an end to it, what's on the other side of it? See, we're getting into the things of God there because we are used to putting things in more of a physical kind of perspective. And there are things that we just don't have questions or answers to our questions about. And that happens to be one of them. What's on the other side? If there's an end of the universe, what's on the other side of it? This is a thing of God. This is a divine act. This child to be born that would be both God and man at the same time. Not one for a while. I hope you don't have the idea that the, 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 the Son of God was God for a while, but in order for him to become a man, a child first and then a man, then he gave up his deity in order to become man. And he, and he came into this world and he lived and, and then he was crucified and died and he was raised from the dead and he ascended back into heaven, at which time he became God again and no longer man. That is not the picture that Scripture paints for us at all. What we're talking about here is God himself becoming also man himself. That, my friends, is the greatest miracle of Scripture. And it's the most amazing thing when you consider that God was willing to do it. That the Father was willing to send forth His Son. That the Son was willing to come and do all that He had to do. The Holy Spirit was in the midst of all of it as well. I hope that when you look at the incarnation of Christ, you understand that it is very mysterious. And there really are no human terms that we can use to explain it in its fullness and its completeness. 
It is an absolute mystery to us. But we believe it's true because the Word of God says that it is true. How will people know that he's actually, when this is actually taking place? Well, one of the signs is this. When she who is in labor has born a child, there will be a child born, according to Micah. That will be the beginning of this great blessing and miracle that God promises here in the Old Testament for those who will believe it. came to his brethren people we understand this and in the Old Testament you'll see that the that the people of God that, that phrase was largely reserved for the people of Israel I'll remind us this morning that uh, and this is this is New Testament teaching on this that really in the eyes of God there really is no longer Israel separated apart from the Gentiles that what he looks at he looks upon his church and that is Jew and Gentile together equal brothers and sisters in Christ himself in the very household of God But we need to understand this, that one of the principal purposes of the coming of the Messiah was to come first of all to Israel. As we read these different uh, narratives that we have in the, in the, in the Bible that in regard to the birth of Christ, we'll see that there were people who came and they understood, who believed it, and knew what it meant, knew what it was. But we also know that there were many who didn't. Herod would be a good example. Herod will try to snuff out this child because he sees him as a threat to himself and to his power. If you are familiar with the Old Testament, one of the things that would strike you there is there's, there's a real sense of abandonment that takes, over, uh, takes place over and over again. But it's not God abandoning him. It's people abandoning God. You see it in, uh, in Israel as they come, kind of come out of Egypt and you read through the narratives on their wanderings uh, through the wilderness and, and all of that, and just the constant, constant desire, in a sense, to go back to Egypt. Do you understand that you have an Egypt? That every believer has an Egypt? Place that sometimes you think about going back to because in some ways it seems as though your life maybe was easier before you became a believer than since you became one. I was talking to a guy many, many years ago on the beach walking one day, and he had become a believer, partly through my conversations with him through a number of the years. A guy I used to work with kind of vaguely and, uh, and that sort of thing, but he'd come to faith, and we were walking on the beach. He said, gosh, Keith, he said, this being a Christian is a hard thing. 
I hadn't, didn't have any idea how difficult it would be to, 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 to live as a believer in this world. He said, there's a sense in which sometimes I, I want to go back because life used to be a lot easier in some ways, a lot more simple in some ways. There's still a little bit of that in all of us. But this one coming forth was going to be very different in all kinds of ways. And one of those is, is, is that he, he, you measure his time frame on the scale of eternity, not in years, not in decades, not in centuries or millennia even. Eternity. He will arise and he will shepherd his flock. Now, I don't know how much you know about sheep. I would imagine most people in this room have had, really had no experience with sheep at all. Raising sheep. But it turns out sheep must have a shepherd. Without a shepherd, sheep don't make it. They are stupid. <laughs> According to Jenny, I didn't say that. Sheep are lost. Sheep can't find their way. Sheep will even destroy their own pasture land. I don't know how much you know about this, but the Sahara Desert gets bigger every year. Do you know why? It's partly because people shepherd sheep around the fringe of it, sheep and goats, who not only cut off the grass leaves when they eat, like cows and horses do, they pull the whole plant up, roots and all, and eat the whole thing. Sheep have to have a shepherd. You know, Jesus describes himself as the great shepherd, the good shepherd. The good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus has arisen. Jesus is shepherding his sheep, his flock. He's been doing that now for 2,000 years. He calls us as well to join him in doing that. There's a sense in which we help Jesus shepherd to everyone around us. His strength does not come in according to his own measure, but it is the strength of the Lord. It's the strength, it's the power of God that enabled Jesus to do everything in life that he did. And it's what continues to enable him to do everything that he continues to do. will be great obviously that one principal thing that is being referred to here is what lies ahead in the future there's a sense already however you need to understand this that Jesus is already great Jesus has already been great all along 
that we know there's a time coming. We know right now that there are a lot of people that even doubt the existence of God, much less this guy named Jesus. A lot of people, and it seems to be a growing percentage of people that live around us believe or don't believe in Christ anymore. Right? You wonder why they celebrate. You go to, you go to Ocala. We, we were going to Ocala uh, a month ago, two or three times in one week. We ate a restaurant over there uh, at the mall. We just really like Texas Roadhouse. And uh, we were just thrilled that place opened up over there. But, 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 but a whole month ago, we went there to eat dinner a couple of times within a few weeks. And we had to park almost halfway down the mall to find a parking place. And it wasn't because everybody was in Texas Roadhouse. It's because everybody was in the mall. Why are people celebrating so much? You need to understand. There are a lot of people out there celebrating Christmas by buying all those Christmas presents who do not believe in Christ Jesus at all. So you wonder why they bother to, why do you bother there to celebrate? Well, it comes down to this. It just, you know, the whole concept just kind of feeds the greedful heart, and that is we like to get presents. We like to give presents sometimes. I think most of us probably would rather give presents than give presents. His name will be great. There probably are a few people in the world that have never heard the name of Jesus. Matter of fact, it's safe to say there are people in the world that never in their whole lifetime will hear the name of Jesus. But the truth is, almost anywhere you go in the world, there were people there who know. They've heard about him. His name is great already to the ends of the earth. But we know that one of these days that that, that is going to come to fullness and fruition. That one of these days Jesus, who, who was dead and resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven, he is coming back to earth again. And when he comes, there will not be anyone on earth that doubts for one moment that God himself has descended upon this planet whether they have lived as devoted atheists up to that point or not. Their knee will bow and their tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is true for everyone. Even those who spend their whole life now denying that reality. He is already great, but his greatness will ever increase. He's described as being this one who will be our peace. We talked about peace in the sermon just a few weeks ago. It's one of those words that usually is hanging on the wall behind me. And we said then this, that people are seeking peace. I think anybody, if 
unless you're, you're absolutely insane, would not, not in some sense of the word think that it would be a good thing to be seeking after peace. But the problem is there's so many people trying to find peace in all the wrong places. There's not a thing in this world that will give people the kind of peace that Christians have. There's nothing that will come close to it. The Bible describes people basically apart from Christ as being at war with God. Not being at peace with God, but at warring against God. People are always claiming that they want peace. But peace is not what we see in the world. There's a sense in which you could say the history of the whole world is the history of war. Very often as we're going through events in history, we use wars as landmarks to identify particular time periods. War is man's gift to himself. sinfulness of man is the culprit. But there are some things that people long for, and one of those is peace. Peace. To be calm. To be at ease. There's only one way to have that on this tumultuous earth this earth that is everything but peaceful that is to be at peace with God first and through that to be at peace with all men you see the peace that we get in Christ is an enabling peace it enables us to help other find, people find that peace I hope this week that you're celebrating. I mean, lots of singing, lots of praying, lots of just rejoicing as you go about your house and you're looking at the Christmas decorations and you're driving around town and you see the Christmas decorations uh, and those kinds of things. And I hope you spend time this, this week just rejoicing and, and treasuring up all of those wonderful and great things in your heart. But I also hope You reflect on peace. Because Christ is the source. He's the only source of what it means to be at peace with God. Don't forget him in your Christmas. Don't forget him. Christmas is about joy, it's about family, it's about all kinds of things, but primarily and principally it's about Christ. And I hope you enjoy all kinds of things through these holidays. But my hope is this, is that you will come to a better understanding of what it means to be at peace with God. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name. Amen.